0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Your biggest problem in life is not your sinus infection. It's not your back pain or your toothache. Your biggest problem is not that your AC went out. It's not your demanding schedule or your weight gain or your marital stress. It's not the fact that every time you turn on your stove top, it trips your oven off and Whirlpool cannot seem to figure out why. Your biggest problem is not the, the failing transmission of your car. It's not your children's bad decisions or your own bad decisions, it's not your misery at work, it's not your insomnia, or your alcohol abuse, or your loneliness that nothing seems to cure. Your biggest problem is not the crack on your iPhone screen. It's not the dead end of your career, or the trauma of tragedy or the heartbreak of betrayal. It's not your debilitating illness or the sins of your spouse or it's not the legislation of your government or the malice of your neighbor. It's not the guy two cars ahead in traffic who waits 10 seconds to take a left on green. It's not. Your biggest problem is not your aging body or your experiences of disappointment. It's not your addictions, not your pathologies, not your brokenness. Your biggest problem is not the fact that one day you will die just like everyone else. That's not your biggest problem. None of these things are your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that as a sinner, You are cut off and separated from God. That is your worst problem. And so, hear the best news Christ suffered once for sins, He, the righteous, for us the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus did not come to solve all of our problems yet, but he came to solve our biggest problem first. And I wanna start here this morning because this is the most important thing I have to say. And in the case that you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus, this is an invitation for you right now, in this moment, right now, turn from your sins and trust him. Right now, put your faith in Jesus and be saved, which means be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. By faith in Jesus, you can be brought back into a relationship with God himself. And for many of us in this room, by God's grace, we know that grace, we know that grace. And so this morning, for the rest of our time, I just wanna talk to you about that. Because that's what the Apostle Peter is doing in this passage. He is writing to Christians. And in chapter three, verse 18, through chapter four, verse six, he really just has two big ideas, and here they are. Number one, remember the gospel event. And then number two, live like Jesus is real those are the two big ideas there's some subpoints that we're going to look at but that is the main outline for this sermon remember the gospel event live like jesus is real let's pray and we'll get started our father in heaven in this moment we confess that we need we need we need your holy spirit we need him So overcome us by his power and speak to us through your word in Jesus' name, amen. All right, looking first at part one here the big idea remember the gospel event here in chapter 3 verses 18 to 22 the Apostle Peter is focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus that's what Peter has in mind when he mentions the suffering of Christ there at the beginning of verse 18 and that's confirmed for us there at the end of verse 18 when Peter says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. The word for flesh there in verse 18 could also be body. And the spirit here is the Holy Spirit. Peter is talking about the event when Jesus physically died and then was physically raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, his bloody cross and his empty tomb. This is what we call the gospel event. That's Peter's focus, that's what he wants us to remember. And then in more detail here, he's gonna highlight for us three accomplishments of the gospel event. Here's the first, okay? So remember the gospel event, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel event, it fulfilled God's purpose for us. Look at verse 18 there and notice first, that the death of Jesus is described as a substitution. Christ suffered, or he died, once for sins, the righteous for, in the place of, the unrighteous. This means that Jesus, who is righteous, who is perfect and blameless and faithful, he died in the place of the unrighteous, the broken, the guilty, the rebellious, which is us. Jesus died for us. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus, the righteous one for us, the unrighteous ones. And now look closer here at at these words. Look closer at the language here. Verse 18, Jesus did that so that he might bring us to God, which is purpose language in verse 18. Peter is saying that the purpose of the cross was to bring us to God, and of course we know that's not the only purpose of the cross, but it was the main purpose of the cross. It was the ultimate purpose of the cross. Every other purpose, every other accomplishment of the cross serves this one. Forgiveness, being declared righteous, our sins being removed, the wrath of God against us being absorbed, the securing of our future inheritance. All of these amazing gifts of the cross are for the ultimate gift of our being brought to God see we are forgiven so that our guilt doesn't keep us from God we are declared righteous so that our condemnation doesn't keep us from God we are cleansed so that our shame doesn't keep us from from God. The wrath that we deserve was taken by Jesus so that future judgment doesn't keep us from God. We we will be given glorified new creation bodies so that our corruptible bodies doesn't keep us from God. The ultimate purpose of the cross and everything the cross accomplished is in order that we might be brought to God. God is the gift. We, by the cross, we get him. And this is where God's purpose for the cross and his purpose for humanity align. We shouldn't be surprised it happens this way. The cross is the definitive, most vivid display of God's love. It's the clearest symbol, the clearest sign of God's heart, and his purpose in that, his purpose in the cross is the same as his purpose for humans, which goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's that men and women created in God's image and likeness, resembling and reflecting God's glory, it's that we would enjoy the display of God's glory forever. That's why God made us. It's so that we would share, so that he would share with us The joy of his glory. And just so you know, this is is where we get into the mountain peaks of truth. The highest mountain peaks of truth. Because here is not only God's purpose for the cross and his purpose for us. It's not only where they align. But here is where God's purpose for us and his end for himself align. It's the eternal enjoyment of His majesty. It's the perfections of His holiness, the radiance of His glory that is beheld and esteemed and hallowed and loved and rejoiced in and shared. That is the fellowship that the Trinity has always known and that we as redeemed creatures get welcomed into forever. And that's it. Like there's nothing higher than this. There is nothing higher than this. And when Jesus died for us, he died for that. He died to bring us to God, that is the most ultimate accomplishment of the cross. And here's the second accomplishment that Peter highlights. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel event marked the defeat of our enemies. Jesus was put to death in his body, raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, look at verse 19 in which or whom, speaking of the Holy Spirit here, he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's presence, patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, what does this mean? There are at least four questions on these verses First, who are these spirits in prison? What did Jesus preach to them? When did he do this preaching? And why is Noah mentioned here? Well, there are several different interpretations to these questions, and I'm not gonna get bogged down into the details, but here's what I think Peter is saying. The spirits are fallen angels, evil angels, who are in prison currently, for their evil and disobedience in the days of noah jesus in his resurrection and exaltation he preached to them as in he made proclamation of his triumph Okay, the same idea, I think, is repeated in verse 22, that Jesus has gone into heaven. The verb there, to go, in verse 22, is the exact same as went in verse 19. So Jesus, verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And included among these evil spiritual beings mentioned in verse 22 are the spirits mentioned in verse 19. They are not in heaven with Jesus, but from heaven, Jesus's victory over them is declared and made known. Their defeat is clear. Jesus has disarmed them. He has put them to open shame, just like Paul tells us in Colossians 2.15, okay? So why, why bring Noah in here? Why mention Noah? Why mention these fallen angels of Genesis 6 who were in the days of Noah? Well, it's because we have a shared connection to Noah. We do, Christians do. Remember back in Genesis 6, Noah and his family were a righteous minority in the midst of a hostile, unbelieving world. And he suffered for that. Noah suffered while doing good. He was maligned for his obedience to God, remember? And his persecutors, Those who oppressed him, literally all of them, ended up being destroyed by the flood. Everyone except for Noah and his family, eight persons who were brought safely through that judgment, which Peter says, by the way, there's a parallel here to baptism. Side note, let's talk about baptism, Peter says. Since we're talking about our connection to Noah, just like Noah was brought safely through water, through judgment, so are we in baptism. That's what the symbol is about. In baptism, we identify with Jesus in his death, the old has, is gone, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life, and the baptismal waters in that symbol, the baptismal waters represent the grave, okay? The baptismal water, is, is, it's not cleansing water, it's judgment water that we are raised out of symbolically as new creations, okay? And so it makes sense to me that when I was a kid, growing up in the church, baptisms always stood out to me. I, I still remember, it was a big deal when they happened, and I still remember to this day, what it was like when we had a baptism, because anytime our church would have a baptism, our baptismal, which is this is customary in the South, a Baptist church, the baptism is is behind the pulpit. And we had this mural of, of the Jordan River, okay, back behind the baptismal. Water and uh, the mural had a river. the The river started in the distance, which is really small, and of course, perspective wise, it gets wider to make it look like the baptismal water is part of the mural. Okay, so uh, that that would happen, and so we, the, what would happen before, right before the baptism in our our church, is the entire sanctuary would go dark and be completely silent. Okay, they would turn off all the lights in the house and in the mural which you couldn't see this most of the time, but in the mural, there was a black light outline of Jesus with his hands like this. And so when the whole place went pitch dark, that image of Jesus would appear. And then in the dark, my pastor would step into the baptismal waters and he would say, in the dark, black lit Jesus behind him, I'm standing in a watery grave. And as a six-year-old kid, I'm completely freaked out, right? And I remember it vividly to this day. But that's what it was. That's what the waters are. The baptismal water is a symbol of a grave. It's a symbol of judgment. And by our union with Jesus, we are saved from that judgment through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism does not accomplish a literal saving, but it's a symbol conveyed in faith that we belong to Jesus and we share in his resurrected life, which includes his victory over evil. That's what verse 22 is saying again, verse 22. See, we've, we've gone down now this tangent on Noah and baptism, like Peter does, like Peter wants us to, but the point is that we know the gospel event has marked the defeat of our enemies. Our enemies, currently, right now, the oppressors of your soul, the enemies of your soul, the evil spiritual realm, including Satan, right now, it is subjected to Jesus. It's subjected to Jesus. Now, evil is still active in the world, it is but it's bound, it's restrained. The death and resurrection of Jesus has marked its defeat. Here's the third highlight. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel event, remember the gospel event, third thing it accomplishes here, it proved that suffering does not have the final say. See, it's easy, I think, as we're reading this, to get a little sidetracked in verses 19 to 21. But look at the bookends here again, verse 19 and verse 22. Verse 18 verse 22. Verse, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins. Verse 22, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Right there, again, the two realities of the gospel event. Jesus died on the cross and Jesus was raised from the grave exalted. And it's the combination of these two things that Peter really wants to stick with us because imagine how encouraging this must be for suffering Christians, right? Hey, suffering Christian, don't be intimidated by your suffering. Don't think that your suffering as a Christian is some kind of abnormality to God's plan. For Christ also suffered, see? Christ also suffered. And Christian, just as the suffering of Christ was the pathway to his exaltation, our suffering is a prelude to our glory. Do you see? The combination of these things, the gospel event, remember the gospel event, isn't that what it is? The death and resurrection of Jesus is victory through defeat. And it proves to us, the gospel event proves to us that suffering does not have the final say, but suffering actually becomes a means to greater blessing. Okay, hear this. It's victory through defeat. Greater gain through loss. Greater glory through shame. Greater life through death. Because of the gospel event, we know that the worst thing is never the last thing. Just memorize that. The worst thing is never the last thing. The gospel of Jesus, his cross and his resurrection prove that to us and Peter wants us to know. He wants us to remember the gospel event and all that Jesus has accomplished. And number two, he wants us to live like Jesus is real. And I'm saying it this way because I think That is the essence of all the ethical commands of the New Testament. When we get down to the main reason that we're told to conduct our lives in a certain way, it's because Jesus is real and all this is true. That's the main reason. And we live in that light, in the light of his realness in the light of his truth. And that means two things in particular, two things, subpoints here. Number one is that we fight to live in that higher plane of reality, because it's a higher plane of reality. And then number two, we expect to be ridiculed by the world. Look at chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So see here, this is an ethical command that's rooted in the gospel event. Because Jesus died and was raised, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is a combat image. Strap on. The same mental outlook that Jesus had about obedience and suffering, that, that you obey even if it means suffering because suffering doesn't have the final say. It doesn't have the last word. And then Peter explains to us what that looks like. It's that whoever has suffered in the flesh or the body, Whoever has has resolved to suffer in their physical existence now, that person has ceased from sin, which means that person, in their resolve to suffer while doing good, they have broken it off with a life of sin. It doesn't mean that they are now sinless and perfect, but this is about their decision, their resolve, their break when they have said no more to sin in order to so that now for the rest of their physical existence on this earth, they no longer live for human passions, but they live for the will of God. And this is where we get into that higher plane of reality. Fight to live in that higher plane of reality. There there are two choices here, okay? Two choices. One, there are human passions, It's what the Gentiles want to do, in verse three. Or, there is the will of God. It is the will of sinful man, or it is the will of a holy God. And well, in Christ, because he died for us, because we have armed ourselves with his way of thinking, we no longer live for the will of man, which verse three explains, includes, verse three, sensuality passions drunkenness orgies drinking parties lawless idolatry those things are behind us now we've spent enough of our lives doing those things those things are over now 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 we choose the will of God, we choose the will of God. But wait a minute, what do you think the will of God means? Do you think that the alternative to a life of sin is a life of ease? Like, do do you think that by breaking it off with sin, by turning away from the will of sinful man, does that mean that now you always have this uh, metaphorical bluebird on your shoulder, right? And that now you can see clearly the clouds are gone and, and all of your disappointments, all your bad feelings, they've all now disappeared. Is that what it means to turn away from sin? Of course not. That's not the will of God that we live for, or at least not here, not, not yet. The will of God, that higher, truer plane of reality to which we are saved and to which we are called to live in this world, that is a fight, man. And that's why you arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Your resistance to sin will mean your suffering. If it were easy, more would do it. And Peter here is gonna focus on one kind of suffering in verse four, but for a minute, I just wanna talk about the existential struggle that I think's in the air of this passage. Remember, Peter is writing to Gentile Christians, which means he's writing to Greco-Roman pagans, who before they believed the gospel, before they became Greco-Roman Christians, they actively participated in all the sins that Peter mentions in verse three. This is not a theoretical list of sins, okay? These are things that these Christians once did and they're still happening all around them. And so you can imagine the pressure, right? You can imagine, the pressure on these Christians. These Christians are thinking, hey, I used to go to my neighbor's slosh fest where all kinds of debauchery would take place, thanks to shameful to speak about. I used to go there, I used to do those things, but Jesus saved me, and I don't do those things anymore. Now I live for the will of God, which means my life is harder. Harder. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? See, Peter knew, as did all the apostles in the letters that they wrote, he knew that the Gentile Christians that they're writing to, that he's writing to, they were always on the brink of potentially slipping back into a pagan, godless lifestyle. Remember, there was no Christian culture cushion back then. You are either a godless pagan or you are now following this man named Jesus who died and has been raised from the dead, and has the right to tell us what to do. That can be hard. That means suffering. It means suffering, and in that suffering, there were many who said, and many who still say, I'm going back, man, I'm done. It's not worth it. And Peter is saying, don't do that. Suffering is part of the plan. Don't you see? Suffering is part of the plan. Fight for that higher plane of reality, not not the, the will of sinful man, but live for the will of God. Now Christians in the first century needed to hear that just as we need to hear that today the lingering shame of our sin and the ghost of our past, those things are just as prevalent in our experience as they were back then in a Greco-Roman pagan culture. Pornography addiction, sexual deviance, homosexual activity, substance abuse, distorted obsessions, these are things that we deal with, church. And so if you're here this morning and you struggle with some of these things, I want you to know first, you're in the right place. In fact, Peter wrote this letter for you. <laughs> he wrote this for you. And I wanna take just a, just a minute here, and I wanna, I wanna tell you something. I wanna tell you three things, okay? If you're here and you're entrenched in this kind of struggle with sin, I want you to know three things. First, you are loved by God. Did you hear that? You're loved by God, and I know that might be hard to believe, but you are. If you are in Christ, you are loved by God and he is not giving up on you and we want either. Second thing I want you to know, you can be known. Be known. Don't suffer in isolation, but bring in your brothers and your sisters for support and accountability. You can talk to me or one of the other pastors or we can put together a strategy for your fight. And then number three, Don't quit. Don't quit. I know you think it might be easier to resign the fight and to go back to doing what the Gentiles want to do, but that is short-sighted. It's short-sighted. To live outside the will of God is to brutalize yourself. Don't go there. Don't do it fight for that higher plane of reality, get perspective, don't quit. That is the calling of every Christian is Peter's exhortation here in verses one to three, and that's what it means to live like Jesus is real. That's what it means to live like he's real. And also now, secondly, if we live like Jesus is real, expect to be ridiculed by the world, verse four. Verse four, with respect to this, this is your break, with your sinful past, with respect to that, they, the Gentiles, your pagan neighbors, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, which is a word that means slander. It's to be defamed. Peter says, you can expect that from the unbelievers who surround you. Now, notice that Peter mentions here verbal or social persecution. He's not talking about physical persecution. We know that physical persecution became a reality for the early church. We know it did. And we know it was sponsored by the state by the Romans. In fact, history tells us that Peter himself was executed by the Roman Emperor Nero, and it probably happened about five years after he wrote this letter. So, so physical persecution is going to happen. We know that. But here at this time, at this moment, it hasn't happened yet. At this point, Peter is addressing ridicule. Verbal or social persecution, it was ridicule from Roman neighbors who took note that these Christians did not participate in what the Romans considered to be normal cultural activities. The Romans noticed that and they didn't like it. They they noticed that these Christians did not bow to their idols or have their yard signs or wear their colors, or go to their parade. And do you know what they said about these Christians because of that? They said, they're not good Romans. They don't make good citizens. They're they're not our kind of people. They saw these Christians as being opposed to the Roman way. And so they treated them like outcasts. They ostracized them. And again, imagine how, how this presented a pressure to these Christians it pressured these Christians to renounce their faith and just jump back onto the cultural bandwagon. But Peter here in verse five, he reminds us, he calls us back to perspective. He says, look, you might think that joining with your oppressors will get you off the social blacklist now. And it will. But don't forget where all this is headed. Perspective, see. Don't forget where we're headed. Those who malign you, They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you know why? Because he is real. We're going to see him. We are all, all of us, will stand before Jesus one day. And that's why the gospel is preached even to those who have died. In verse 6, Peter here is talking about Christians who had died since they became Christians. And so this is probably part of the ridicule that they heard from these Roman neighbors. It said these Christians who believe, these Christians who believed in this new life in Christ, these Christians who believe in this resurrection, they die just like everybody else and when they die it looks just like every other death their bodies stop working and they're gone and so these these pagans would have used this as a way to scorn these christians but peter says remember christians remember death is not the end Remember, remember the truth about the way things are, even though it may not seem like it right now. Peter wants to give them, Peter wants to give us, we Christians, he wants to give us perspective. And if I had to put that perspective in a phrase, the perspective is, Jesus is real. Live like Jesus is real. Remember the gospel event. In his death and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled God's purpose for us. He defeated our enemies. He proved that suffering does not have the final say, and therefore we should live like he's real, fighting for that higher plane of reality, expecting the ridicule of the world, but knowing, knowing that it is all worth it because my worst problem, our worst problem, has been answered by the best news. That Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. We get God. We get him forever. And that's what brings us now to the table. As the band can come, the servers can get ready. Over the last week, there have been hard things within our church community and within our extended families as a church. And we bring those hard things with us wherever we go. But here at this table, like in this moment, this is when we stop. We stop and we set our minds on what is most true. It's that we've been brought to God. It's that we are His. It's that we are loved. It's that no matter what happens here, we have a future with Him forever. So at the table, the bread represents The body of Jesus, the cup represents his shed blood. And when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we are remembering that Jesus died for us and was raised and we are giving him thanks. And so this morning, if you're here and you know that Jesus died for you and was raised for you, if you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.